0: love this podcast support this show through the Acast supporter feature it's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment just hit the link in the show description to support now
1: there are moments in our life when we are shaped through adversity and challenge propelled through turbulent change were presented with an opportunity to take wings and soar from a dark place to one of light. I'm Leslie Salem, founder of Over the Bloody Moon, on a mission to take the muddle out of menopause and show the positive side to this time of life. At Over the Bloody Moon, we believe in three T's to help us thrive, a team, tools and a tribe. In our second series of The Changemakers, we invite you to meet clinicians and specialists who share their experience and knowledge to help you manage your menopause. Come join us for the flight. Today's show is called Brain Health and Menopause, and we're gonna be focusing on why our brain starts to change during this transition, and how it might impact us in different ways. We'll be touching on mood, sleep, hot flushes and night sweats, as well, of course, about brain fog, to learn about the science as well as pick up tips to help keep our neurons protected. We are delighted to welcome onto the show Dr. Sarah McKay, a neuroscientist and author of A Woman's Brain. The book explores the neuroscience of health, hormones and happiness across the female lifespan. Sarah, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Um, It's my morning, very early, and your evening. So thank you, and lovely to see you.
0: Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's uh, very much appreciated. So tell
1: us a little bit first about the book. What inspired you to focus on the
0: woman's brain? That's a very interesting question. It certainly was never really part of any of the studies or research that I've done. I went off to university and did a degree in neuroscience and so I've been doing this for a really really long time but I was approached by a book publisher and the woman became my agent who said do you want to write a book and I went I don't really have any ideas and she said oh don't worry about that let's just chat and through our conversation she asked me some questions around baby brain this idea we lose our mind when we're pregnant of which the neuroscience shows the opposite. And then she asked me about menopause and brain fog and dementia. And I said, well, you know, that's really interesting because there's quite a lot going on there. And she said, well, why don't you write a book on menopause? And I was like, I'm not doing that. Um, It's nothing I've experienced being in my early 40s at the time. But I realised as she was asking me these questions, she had this interest in aspects of women's health And I'd never really considered them before through the lens of neuroscience and neuroscience is so broad and rich and deep and I thought well you know that would be interesting to take a look at as I say you know periods and puberty and the pill and menopause and and take a look at them through this neurobiological lens and knowing what I know about brain plasticity and brain development you can't consider any point in the lifespan without looking at what's come before that. So it was it ended up being kind of a womb-to-tomb tour of, of the female life through the lens of the brain. And these were questions that I'd never asked before in neuroscience terms. So it was a really fun, interesting research project that I took myself on.
1: Well, I just found the book completely fascinating. And it's interesting because I'm obviously, in my role as well, very aware of transitions and how physically the woman's body is designed to go through so much. But I've never really thought about the brain having to adapt, you know, as well. We're going to move on now to talk about menopause. So I'd like to understand how the changes of hormones, everything that's going on, at this time might impact and particularly in perimenopause the stage leading up to menopause when we're still getting our periods even if irregular so what's happening to the brain Sarah during this time?
0: Yeah well that's really interesting it's probably worthwhile taking a step all all the way back to puberty when the brain and the ovaries first start having their conversation with each other so to speak so we understand that the brain actually turns on in puberty it's kind of a biological clock which switches on, it seems to be in some way genetically pre-programmed to turn on and then that signals to the ovaries and the boys it would signal to the testes to start this kind of rhythmic release of various hormones which kind of dance about without getting into the names of all of the hormones, we'll just really focus on estrogen being released at the time of ovulation, progesterone after that if there's no pregnancy and estrogen and progesterone signal back to the brain and wherever we have receptors for hormones throughout our body and brain then the hormones are able to act and we know that there are hormones in the brain because there's this kind of ovarian brain conversation and that carries on all the way through your fertile years shows some change some significant changes obviously during pregnancy and then when we get to the end of our fertile years it's not the brain that changes first it's the ovaries And what drives that essentially is your eggs are getting older. And so they are less likely to ripen in a predictable manner and release the same amount of estrogen that they would in a very predictable manner as they do when you're much younger. And that means the amount of estrogen reaching your brain kind of roller coasters, particularly during those perimenopausal years. And we would see that reflected, obviously, in changing cycles. You know, sometimes you get a long cycle, a short cycle, something that was predictable and light. You may end up with really heavy periods that you've never experienced before. We see this fluctuation, and this is caused by this kind of sputtering, start-stop-again conversation between the ovaries and the brain, and primarily the part of the brain which receives the signal from the ovaries and talks back to them this area of the brain called the hypothalamus. And it's buried quite deep in your brain. It's very busy. And it's constantly monitoring, receiving information and input about everything to do with your body, like blood pressure, heart rate, body temperature, pH, hormone levels. And so it's constantly monitoring that. And then it sends the signal back down via the pituitary. So essentially it's that changing conversation which then in many women, not in all women, has some knock-on effects that we may see symptomatically. It's primarily a neurological transition. We tend to think of puberty, pregnancy, and menopause as being stuff that happens from the neck down. But there's significant neurological transitions in the lives of of women. Mm. So let's talk a little
1: bit more about the impact of oestrogen and menopause. How does it manifest in sort of impacting women or some women at this time.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily predictable who's going to sail through and who's going to suffer and who's going to kind of have a few symptoms that are manageable. Although there are some hints that perhaps if you had very, very difficult pregnancies or perhaps you were a person who was more sensitive to hormonal shifts during your monthly cycle, that may be an indicator of how you experience menopause, but not necessarily. There's a lot of components in there. But I suppose the most well-understood change that takes place and this is from a brain neuroscience perspective would be changes in thermoregulation and that's primarily kind of experienced in women as hot flashes or hot flushes and night sweats And what's happening in the brain, we zoom in and take a look again at this region of the brain, the hypothalamus, that I just described. It's very, very busy, and it's receiving the inputs about lots of different body functions, including hormones, and also controls and regulates thermoregulation, body temperature. And it essentially has what we might call a thermostat, get above a certain temperature or below a certain temperature the heating in the room would turn on or the air conditioning would turn on and we're the same when we get a bit too hot our thermostat signals to our body to flush dilate blood vessels in the skin to release heat sweat and take your clothes off and at night when you're asleep you might not behave in the same way you would when you're awake so typically you wake up already drenched in sweat and throw the covers off and then get cold and put them on and then get hot, throw them off. And women end up in that kind of cycle. And essentially what happens in menopause is that thermostat has become narrower. The oestrogen has it set at a certain setting through your fertile years. And when oestrogen starts waving goodbye and the conversation becomes all kind of chaotic, the thermostat gets narrower. So you get colder easier and you get hotter easier. So you need a tiny, tiny change in your internal body temperature for your hypothalamus to signal to your body it's really, really hot when it might only be a tiny change that when you were 30 you wouldn't have even noticed. I guess that's why for those that are taking HRT, why it's effective because it kind of increases that band and reduces the sensitivity. Yeah, without getting too much into the neuroscience because it does get kind of complicated, we are kind of are starting to now understand what's happening at the level of the neurons and which type of neurons are reacting and why and how they do and how they triggers the actual kind of level change in the thermostat. And that is regulated by estrogen. One of the most reliable indicators we have estrogen changes thermoregulation in the brain is put it back in with HRT, the problems typically go away.
1: And are there any other strategies or ways of tricking the brain when this happens in terms of hot flushes? Uh,
0: Look, not reliably, not in the same way. I mean, there's all of the behavioural things that you could do. So make sure, you know, you've got layers of clothes to take off and the room's not too hot. You don't eat food that makes you flush and all of that. I mean, that's something that you, if you choose not to take hormone therapy, you're then going to have to manage in that way. Now, there is some new research which has come through, I believe, out of the UK looking at women who've been treated for breast cancer and experienced early menopause because of chemotherapy or their various cancer treatments, using cognitive behavioural therapy to help women manage these hot flashes or thermoregulation issues. And it's interesting here because it's not so much that the hot flashes go away It's more that women don't get distressed when they occur. We've kind of gained a bit of emotional and cognitive regulation over the experience of them. And that's really important to understand is some women might get hot and sweaty, but it might not worry them. It might not be distressing to them, whereas other women just might find that just awful. So that sort of top-down psychological component of any physical experience is a really important part of that. Another strategy to think about finding ways to kind of manage your emotional response to a physical symptom in that way.
1: Yeah, there's a huge amount of evidence to show that if one is highly stressed in response, then it's going to
0: kind of create almost this vicious cycle. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit like you know when you blush when you're a kid, and I used to be called beetroot at school. <laughs> that was my nickname. <laughs> it was an embarrassing nickname, and it and it spirals because I became self conscious and stressed if people looked at me that I would go red. So I'd go red, and they'd laugh, and that's a kind of a psychological dialing up of a a stress response, mm. basically with a psychological component in it. So. It's one way that we can approach the hot flashes, whether or not it necessarily helps at night, because then you aren't being able to gain the sort of the psychological control in the same way, because obviously you're asleep. I mean, it's amazing, like 40% of women, I think,
1: experience sleep disorders as they are going through their menopause transition, which increases to around 60% post-menopause. So what's happening to the brain
0: during this time that impacts on sleep? Yeah, well, there's always going to be when someone develops a sleep issue at any point in time, whoever they are, there's a lot of contributing factors to that. But if we focus simply on menopause, like we've pointed out, one of the most obvious is night sweats, waking you up, disrupting your sleep. So you wake up, you're hot and sweaty, you throw the covers off, you've kind of got that surge through your body and then you fall asleep with the covers off and then you wake up because you're cold if it's winter and so that can be kind of become a vicious cycle disrupted sleep over the course of one night if you like your sleep and typically get good sleep has knock-on effects the following day have that happening over many weeks or months or years the inevitable effects of disrupted sleep are, are obvious to us all you know problems with emotional regulation anxiety depression Um, feeling foggy, forgetful, all of those are reasonably predictable outcomes from disrupted sleep. So do we understand what happens in those women who perhaps aren't experiencing night sweats but are finding that their sleep is disrupted again? It could partly be, not in everyone, but in many of those women, we could still be seeing disrupted sleep architecture as a result of problems with thermoregulation. Now we focus a lot on thinking about when it gets dark, we release melatonin and that signals to our body to go to sleep. It's really interesting to realise that one of the signals that melatonin gives to our body is to reduce our body temperature so that we can fall asleep quicker. So that drop in body temperature is signalled by melatonin. Body temperature and sleep are intimately related. We only, what happens in it's a really, really, really hot night. Well, here in Australia, if you've got air conditioning or a fan, you turn it on. But other parts of the world that might not be set up for that, if it's a really, really hot night, you find it hard to sleep, you have crazy dreams. What we would call those stages of sleep that you would naturally move through in the night from REM sleep down to stage one, two, to deep sleep and back up again. What well, that's what we call sleep architecture. That can get disrupted if thermoregulation is disrupted, even if you're not necessarily conscious of being woken up. But insomnia per se, whereby you have trouble falling asleep or you wake up and can't get back to sleep and it's a distress for you, Part of that, again, is that psychological component, that anxiety, that worry about sleep, feeds back into poor sleep.
1: So the impact of disrupted sleep, of course, then has a big knock-on effect in terms of what many people talk about as brain fog. So let's talk about what is actually physically happening to the brain during this transition. You know, what what is brain fog
0: from a neuroscientist's perspective? It's not a scientific term or even a medical term. It's more of a, a kind of a layperson's description of how they feel when they may be forgetful or having trouble paying attention or they can't focus or you know, they're losing the names of things, you can't concentrate on reading a book. And we see this emerging, and the kind of phrase brain fog used it many times, you know, in times of incredible stress, people will often experience this inability to pay attention and to remember words and to feel kind of on and focused. We see it when when people are really stressed, we see it when we're sleep-deprived, we see it in women who are going through menopause and perimenopause. Now, in many cases, it may be as a direct consequence of the disrupted sleep. And we can see that sometimes resolve in women when we maybe put HRT back in, improve the thermoregulation, improve the sleep, improve the brain fog. But that isn't the case in everyone. So there is some suggestion that there may be other things going on The brain is undergoing a significant, as I said, neurological transition during this point in time. And some work has just come out in the last month or so. A paper that was published in Nature Science Reports, which is kind of a real top tier and the kind of the rung of of science journals by Lisa Moscone and her research group looking at the brains of women as they transition through menopause. And it's really interesting looking at brains pre-menopause and post-menopause. It's almost as if they're kind of settled into their sort of state, but that perimenopause, we see quite a significant flux in terms of how grey matter structure is changing, how blood flow is changing, how white matter structure is changing what's really interesting is that we see an increase in grey matter in women going through menopause. It's almost as if the brain is kind of pruning and tuning itself and adapting to this new environment. So grey matter is all of the wrinkly kind of grey that you would see on the outside of the brain is grey matter and that's where a lot of our processing does. That's where all the neurons are kind of talking to each other and white matter sits below that and that's where all the connections between different brain areas are and white matter is called white matter because it's white. And it's typically that the axons or the connections between neurons are wrapped in myelin. The analogy is like the plastic coating on an electrical cable. And then grey matter is called grey matter because it's coloured grey because it doesn't have the white wrapping. (laughs) So if you compare premenopausal brains with perimenopausal brains with postmenopausal brains, there's more grey matter after menopause than before. Which is curious, and that's the opposite of what we see in puberty when we first see all of these hormones introduced to the system, when we see grey matter reducing and gets thinner in teenagers, which seems bizarre because teenagers are kind of peak learners and performers, and the brain there is kind of refining and pruning and tuning and streamlining its skills. And for some reason, we're seeing the opposite in menopause, whereby we're seeing more grey matter Now, that's probably not caused by lots of new neurons being born. It's probably caused by some rearrangement of the connections that are kind of in some way flourishing or in some way perhaps responding to the reduction in the hormone. We don't actually really know what that means. (laughs) And it's kind of a conundrum. We know that estrogen present in a system causes neurons to produce more connections between neurons. So estrogen is like a cognitive enhancer. It kind of makes neurons flourish and grow and more liable to produce connections. So we're not entirely sure what this increase in grey matter means and whether it is in any way related to brain fog or whether it's an adaptive response of the brain. It's gone through this transition and it's gone, right, I've really kind of got up my game now. But I think it's really fascinating and it's almost kind of doing the opposite of what you might intuitively predict
1: We have in our community, people all the time, you know, worried about whether they've got a form of dementia and asking, is this menopause? Is it kind of classic brain fog? Or is there something else going on? I know this is an area that you touch on in your book. So
0: it'd be really good for the listeners just to kind of maybe explain the difference. Yeah, well, brain fog is a experience that you have so perhaps we could almost take as a bit of a canary in the gold mine signal that perhaps you need to take a step back and look at your sleep, look at your diet, look at your exercise, look at your emotional regulation, look at your stress buffering. And typically if we can get all of those back into ship shape and whether or not hormone therapy is part of that program to help or whether you're just solely focusing on lifestyle factors, it's entirely up to an individual to figure that one out. We often see brain fog resolve. It's more of a symptom of a transition or a symptom perhaps of something not being quite right. Dementia is an umbrella term under which sits Alzheimer's disease being the most common disease to cause symptoms of dementia. And it's not an inevitability. It is a disease of unhealthy ageing. And it has many, many risk factors. The main risk factor is getting older. Now, my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys can never remember where their shoes are, where they put their computer, their book, what time it is, whether they should be going to bed or not, if they had a shower today or yesterday. They aren't worrying about dementia, (laughs) even though they're not very good at remembering things. So we do also have a tendency depending on where we are in our lifespan, to almost kind of look for the most obvious hook to put a hat on and think, well, it must be dementia because of my age and I'm experiencing some symptoms. It's absolutely not the case that brain fog is the first sign of dementia, although it's a very common experience for people to worry about that. And I think that's the sort of thing that we should be talking about with a really well-trusted you know, a trusted GP. If they can run all the tests to kind of figure out, is this true cognitive decline or is this simply brain fog, we've got some strategies we can put into place to help with that. They're not the same mm. thing. One is a disease of unhealthy ageing. The other one is perhaps you're not getting enough good sleep at night.
1: Yeah, and just to put that into kind
0: of a practical
1: example... If you are in perimenopause and you're experiencing brain fog and you're baking a cake, you might forget to put an egg in. Whereas if you've got Alzheimer's, you will actually have difficulty following
0: a recipe full stop. That is a brilliant analogy. Or you might read the recipe and go, what's an egg and put in a dishwashing tablet. You know, people with dementia start making terrible mistakes Or someone with brain fog or my kids or my husband all the time forgets where the keys are for the car. But someone with dementia will find the keys and won't know what to do with them. They won't know how to drive the car anymore. So there's a big difference there. And typically if you're in your late 40s, early 50s, you're not really in that kind of zone of age-related risk per se anyway. Mm. But that's why it's really important to be really well informed about all of the options available for you at this age and I often say if you're not going to start taking ownership of your own health heading into menopause at what age do you think you might start at? Yeah so just to kind of you know share the
1: stories that we hear around this time in relation to brain fog are things like forgetfulness, forgetting the names of words particularly you know nouns, it might be difficulty of focusing on a conversation or a task generally kind of, you know, slower processing. And and we know that there are changes as well to the metabolism of the brain for some people. Um, But the big question is, once we have hit menopause 365 days after our last bleed, then what happens? Does it go away? Because some people talk about being in their stride. Other people talk about it kind of continuing. So Post-menopause, do we start to see with hormones settling down, the brain fog starts to dissipate or
0: does it just continue? Yeah, often, yes, that is the case. And often the symptomology appears to be due to the fluctuations of hormones. Once you kind of get off the roller coaster and tramline a bit, kind of flattens out, then we do start to see symptoms resolve. And part of that may be, as I've said, the brain then adapting to this new state. And part of that is brains don't stay the same. They respond and adapt and are very resilient and can come up with new ways to do the things that they used to do if we provide the right support. And I think there's one really interesting way to think about menopause, this idea that it's only humans and a couple of species of whale that experience menopause. And a large part of what we have taken from the orca whales and the pilot whales is those pods that have the menopausal matriarch, the wisdom of all of those years of experience that you have is the survival of the pod, is the more healthy, younger, fit baby whales (laughs) coming up through and the knowledge of the feeding grounds and the knowledge of the shifting seasons. And we aren't withering away. We're just at the next phase of life and our brains are able to continue and adapt to that. I'd like to
1: just Talk about mood and this emotional regulation. What is happening, again,
0: with the brain during the menopause transition and how does that play out for mood? Mood is very, very subjective and we often see significant mood changes in different, these big life transitions that we go through that also have big hormonal shifts. But what is really, really interesting is if you look at each of these transitions, there's not a lot you can necessarily do about the hormone shifts and you can't always draw a direct dot-to-dot line between the state of a hormone and the state of a mood, between having oestrogen or not. What we do know, though, is one of the strongest predictors of mood, one of the strongest predictors of a positive outcome in any of these points in time is the social architecture the the social signals and the data that's coming in around people, and we know this, kids going through puberty, their emotional experience is often influenced by how they perceive their body changing in relationship to their peer group. Boys going through Mm. puberty earlier, rise in social stature in their peer group versus boys who go through much later. But girls who go through early often feel really, really self-conscious about their body and Mm. have worse outcomes than the boy who goes through puberty earlier. So we see... Pubertal hormones, there, but social context matters. Similarly, women going through menopause, it's about these networks that people like you build. You're going to be more successful with this transition if we don't just solely turn our gaze inward and look at what's happening in our ovaries or what's not happening in our ovaries anymore and focus very much on the interoception signals but kind of look out and gather some of that social support and architecture and reach out to other people and that's really as strong a predictor if not more of many, many health Mm. outcomes. We we have a tendency, I think, often to blame bad moods on hormones. (laughs) We tend to fall back on that trope when there's often other signals coming into our brain, social signals, stress signals, etc which can buffer.
1: Yeah, that makes sense because again, just reflecting on the stories that we hear from our community, is very much around stories of irritability and feeling snappy or teary and feeling more volatile and a lack of kind of control over those. But listening to you talking about the social construct It makes a lot of sense because actually menopause is one transition, but if it's a natural aging process and actually even if it's not, if it's early and caused because of trauma of surgery or something else that's going on, there are other transitions that are colliding at this time and that is
0: the social construct piece that therefore makes it hard. Yeah, and I think the puberty is just as big a transition as menopause in terms of brain changing, hormones changing, social changes. We tend to almost default to the hormones, which are sometimes the things that we can do the least about, and that removes a bit of agency as well. And we tend to kind of badmouth them and blame them and lean on them. And that in a way removes the options that we have to look for sources of support elsewhere. And those social signals can easily override a hormonal signal. We could look at, you know, post-menopausal women who may feel they left a long, dull marriage in many years and feel a bit dried up (laughs) and unexcitable. (laughs) If they've been with the same bloke for 30 years and they meet, you know, some new nice young fella that 55, 60, they've got this new lease on life and this this new human in their life overrides any lack of estrogen. Um, We can... Tune in too much to some signals and not others. Learning and having a realisation about some of the upsides is useful. So, you know, you do such good work in that space. Fantastic. So I want to leave the listeners with a message of empowerment,
1: really, because, you know, there's obviously all these changes going on. It's an opportunity to kind of, you know, tune in, as you've said, and explore perhaps some of the things that we've stopped managing so well. So if I was to summarise based on what you've said, key is managing stress, looking at the way we are interpreting and perceiving stress and getting that sort of empowerment back and and of course tied up in that is sleep making sure that we're getting enough sleep and it is more about quality than quantity
0: but of course we need a decent amount I think if you could focus all of your powers on sleep and that includes if you're going to take hormone therapy to get your thermoregulation under control to prioritize sleep sleep sits in the middle of every aspect of mind and brain health We are programmed to do it at least eight hours a day. So there has to be a deep, strong evolutionary drive for our brains to be unconscious for eight hours a day and leaving Mm. us as vulnerable as we are in the dark. You know, every cell in our body responds to the light-dark cycle. So it is so important and so dismissed. So if you can keep that at the centre of everything and do all of these different pieces and around that to support that, then everything else is so much easier. Your mental health is easier, your brain fog lifts, your ability to interact and socialise with other people in really useful ways, not harmful ways. So I put sleep as core and then holding hands in a circle around that are the social networks. Uh, So our brains evolved, they just need other people and the most useful thing for a brain is another person. The most harmful thing can be as well. Put those two pieces into place We'll be so much happier. Well, then we can go and be these wise menopausal orcas and, you know, (laughs) save our pod. And then
1: there are two other power tools that we haven't really spoken about, but I just want to kind of leave the listeners with this as well, which is, you know, the power of nutrition, what we put into our bodies. We know that the body starts to have difficulty regulating things like insulin, and this is going to have an impact on our clarity of thinking. So just wanted to kind of have your response on, are there any particular food
0: types that we should be having? I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. Fasting, and I know it's become really trendy, but there's a ton of science supporting that. I mean, that old, old phrase from Michael Pollan years ago, eat less, more plants. We all need more vegetables and we probably should all eat less. And I think if you can find a way to introduce fasting into your life, it improves all of your insulin, glucose regulation, which again feeds back into, you know, it's another one of these little pieces in the puzzle around brain health and mental health and fogginess. So I'm a really big fan of, of that. that doesn't suit everyone, but I follow a sixteen-eight style. And I tried it and dabbled with it for a few years and then kind of gave it up. And then the science completely convinced me that that's a really useful tool and I feel mm-hmm. a whole lot better doing it. And, and again, I always talk about brains and how they evolved. They evolved on foot, you know, when we were trotting around looking for food with our tribe. So, you know, that drive and the focus and the sharpness that we experience when we're slightly hungry, there's a strong evolutionary basis for that. Mm -hmm. Feeling foggy and well-fed and fat and sleepy after a meal (laughs) makes Mm -hmm. sense too. So there's a bit in there. And then, you know, the food that you're going to eat, Mediterranean-style diet, hands down. And, you know, find a bit of joy in it as well. I mean, it shouldn't be this kind of moral, puritanical type thing to eat. And food, I kind of find food a bit boring to talk about because it removes the joy from it in a way. So that's why I'm intermittent fasting, you know, I just am not eating. And then when I'm eating, I'm loving it. <laughs> and there are things also like
1: omega-3s, food with antioxidants, you know, making sure that we're hydrated. All of these things are gonna help with things like brain fog. And then the final power tool that we haven't really spoken about is of course movement. And that helps the oxygen
0: go to the brain. So just wanted to get your final sort of thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, our brains evolved to move our bodies around the world. They didn't evolve to think or feel firstly, they evolved for movement. And so when you're moving your body through the natural world and you're engaging your muscles and you're moving, walking, interacting with the world, you're using your body and your brain for what they evolved primarily to do. And there's also some really, really good evidence coming out around not just aerobic fitness and brain health and slowing cognitive decline and perhaps that disease of ageing dementia, but also muscle health and fitness. There are some studies out there showing you can reverse mild cognitive decline by simply doing resistance training, whereby, you know, you're increasing your muscle mass instead of muscles wasting away. A bit like what we call sarcopenia, which is like osteoporosis for bones, sarcopenia for muscles. There is a relationship between that and cognitive decline. So another way into the brain is through your muscles, Because a large amount of our brain is involved with controlling our muscles and moving them around. So work on them as well. Introduce much more complex routines, work on balance, all of that, not just exercise and fitness.
1: Fascinating. Um, I've so enjoyed chatting to you. I've learned so much. It's been really, really interesting to hear from a scientific, evidence-based perspective about some of the changes that are happening. I think it makes it less scary. It makes it more normalized, but also great to have this conversation as well. We all have the power to tune in to the cognitive sort of function so thank you
0: so much for your time today it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much for the invitation to chat and congratulations on all the good work you do